Get asked to become a godparent in Greece, and you become part of the family. You know, you take on the role of things like Christmas and Easter and name days, that being there for their school parties and school presentations and award ceremonies and swim meets and all that kind of thing. Coming up, we look at what it takes to be a Greek godmother. We'll also get recommendations for exploring Athens as the Greek capital grows into one of Europe's most improved cities with a few charming surprises. I went up to this little street and I have the feeling that I'm in Santorini and not in Athens. An Arab-American Christian tells us about getting to better appreciate the religion of his Muslim friends. Those people cared about my eternal soul and whether I'd get to go to paradise. And learn the meaning behind those colorful Tibetan prayer flags. You really are seeing an ancient tradition that lives in the modern world. It's all coming up in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. You'll see them flying in the breeze on hillsides in Himalayan mountain villages and maybe on your neighbor's porch. Coming up, a clergywoman from Iowa explains what she's learned about those colorful Tibetan prayer flags and the meaning behind them. A former Peace Corps volunteer explains the respect he's gained for the tenets of the Muslim faith after teaching English at schools in Morocco and Yemen. And we'll update our view of Athens, the place I recommend for the Most Improved City Award in Europe. A local guide recommends where you can explore the one-time haunts of aristocrats and Byzantines in neighborhoods known for a more bohemian vibe today. I was in Greece at Easter time a few years ago and was impressed to see how families work together to prepare for the holiday. Even the children's godparents joined in as they dyed Easter eggs together. I saw how they added color to their extended families by keeping the godparents involved in their children's upbringing. For a look at what it means to be tapped as a child's godparent in Greece, we're joined by tour guide Maria Solis. She's a godmother to three, and as we'll hear, she takes her responsibilities very seriously. Maria, first of all, how did a British woman like yourself end up living in Athens? Well, when I was studying at college in England, in the northeast of England, I met a tall, dark, handsome Greek, and the rest is history. And you've lived in Greece? Lived in Greece since 1982. Can an English woman who marries into the Greek community be accepted after three decades? Oh, absolutely. I was accepted a lot earlier than three decades. Really? So you're part of the community? Yes, yes. And that's an intimate part because uh, apparently people have chosen you to be their child's godmother. That's right. So what's the role? You heard in my introduction what I described in in Easter. I was was so struck by that. Did that resonate with you? Very, very much so. Religion within the Greek community is, you won't find the church is full every Sunday, but it still plays a very, very important part in their lives. And it starts with the baptism. And the child is received into the Orthodox Church, receives its name, and is accepted as part of the Orthodox community. And basically, the role of the godparent is one of, like a sponsor, you're basically answering the questions that have been asked by the priest on behalf of this child. It's very, very important that the role is taken seriously because it's a lifelong. This is something that you can't just take on. As so the, the friend, the religious friend, is there at the baptism, sort of supporting the parents and being part of the ceremony and formally becoming the godparent of that child as he or she is baptized? The most important person, obviously apart from the child, is the godparent because the parents are entrusting the child wow. to the godparent. Okay. It actually so it's more than in a Catholic or Protestant absolutely, situation because, because we have godparents also. 
But True. there's not the same reliance. No, on it. it stems back from early Christianity when Christians were being persecuted and often they would be killed and they would literally choose somebody to take care of their child to carry on this teaching of the Christian faith. So because an is... early Christian was likely to be martyred. Correct, yeah. I didn't right. realize that's where godparents yeah, came yeah, from. Yeah. So you, you have three friends apparently that have chosen you to yeah, be right. their godmother. Who are these friends and why do um, they trust you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. It started with, it was actually my husband's best friend. When they got married, they chose us as their best man and woman, okay. their, their kubari. Uh-huh. Traditionally, it's the kubari who become the godparents of the firstborn child. Uh-huh. And that was how it started. And even though I wasn't Christian Orthodox, both of the parents got special permission, basically, from the priest that I be allowed to participate. And in you're Christian, but just not Greek Orthodox. Greek Orthodox. And the, the Greek Orthodox priest said... Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, he checked me out and made sure that, <laughs> <laughs> that, I, that so I was okay. So you've got three friends this way. So, so this you. was it. So they were both Greeks. And then my second goddaughter, she, her mother is English and the father is Greek. They asked me to be godmother. Now Millie's grown up. She's uh, going to college and they now live in the UK. They come over to Greece and I love spending time with her. And the youngest godchild that I have is Nikos. He's just turned 12. He's the light of my life. And his mother is Scottish and his father is Greek. The light of your light. When you said that, it was the joy I felt when I witnessed the little girl running to her godmother and godfather in Naftlion when I was there for Easter recently. Just delight, just love, just like having a child. So you said yes three times. I did. It's a lot of work. I mean, I said yes because, you know, there's no follow-through. There's <laughs> my world. It's just, okay. And I mean, I'm embarrassed about that. But in Greece, you, you really, it's, a, yeah, it's an it's... ongoing responsibility. Uh, what's expected of a godmother in Greece? Well, once obviously the service is over, your main role traditionally would be to ensure that the child follows the Christian Orthodox faith, mm-hmm. that they attend the church services, that they attend communion. But it's more than that, really, for me. I like to take on the role with them as somebody that I can turn to if there's an issue going on with them that they maybe can't talk to their parents about. Okay. Or So it's, it's really to be like a confidant, somebody that they can turn to if they're, whatever their problems are. Because parents have a certain role that, understandably, a child might not feel comfortable going exactly. to their parents. So the exactly. godmother or father can provide that. Exactly. That's a beautiful thing. And then there's also, you know, you take on the role of things like you know, Christmas and Easter and name days, that being there for their school parties and school presentations and award ceremonies and swim meets and all that kind of thing. So. And just standing in at some of these Orthodox services, they last forever and you stand up. <laughs> That's I true. couldn't believe it. I That's was there true. on Easter and it was yeah. like... People have been here for 24 hours. They come and go for a lunch or a dinner or something. A regular service on a Sunday will last for three hours. (laughs) (laughs) We don't stay for the duration, I hasten to add. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Maria Sulis about the role of a Greek godmother. So um, you're doing a good job, it sounds like. I hope so. <laughs> does, does every Greek Orthodox child have a godparent? Yes, yes, you have to have a, godma- a godparent. It can be a man or a woman, or you can have two, but you have to have a godparent. As uh, all Greek baptisms, there is a godparent. They're the focal point of what's going on. Now, when we think about Orthodox, doesn't that just mean almost literally unchanging? The right choice. The, the right, right choice. Yes, the right, yes. So yeah. if it was Orthodox in the year 800, it's Orthodox Absolutely, today. today. Yes. And when you step into a church, Protestant or a Catholic church, it's had the Reformation, it's had Vatican II, it's had plenty of ways Correct. to kind of, quote, update. Yeah, it's evolved, whereas the Orthodox Orthodoxy. Church is... I often say that somebody from 800 years ago 
We could step in. Absolutely. And nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. (laughs) I think that's important for us as travelers to remember because we're welcome to step into a Greek Orthodox service. Mm -hmm. And we've got to remember, don't judge it by being out of style or or old-fashioned. It is, by definition, unchanging. Absolutely. And in a sense, that's probably one of the joys of Orthodoxy. You don't have to wonder, uh, do we still do this or do we do that now and so on. That's right. The mysticism is something that I think when you step into an Orthodox church, it just is all enveloping. An Orthodox priest once had a good time explaining to me the importance of the incense, creating this amazing environment. And he said he, he shapes the mood by which incense he chooses. He considers people who are not Greek Orthodox. He said something like, people who have not experienced the incense. There's some sort of a mystical presence created in an Orthodox service with the music, with the candles, with the icons, with the incense. It's a beautiful timelessness, I think. I think that's exactly right. I think it's the timelessness of it. I mean, as a child going into a Roman Catholic church, there was always incense at the the holiest part of the service. There was incense. And it's the same in a Greek Orthodox church. In fact, so much so that even in cemeteries, if you go to visit a grave in a Greek cemetery, you will take a little incense brick and light it on the on the gravesite again to, as you've brightly said, this aura of mysticism about it. British-born Maria Soulis has called Greece home for more than three decades. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, she's telling us about the responsibilities that come with being designated a godmother for her friend's children, and also the Greek Orthodox traditions she helps to maintain in their lives. So you've been the mother, in a religious sense, a godmother, of three young Greek children. In what way have you contributed to their understanding of their Orthodox faith? What challenges have you dealt with them to help them grow up with a a faith as strong as their parents hope they'll have? It's been difficult for Millie because obviously she's in the UK. Uh But with Nikos, every Easter, it's very important that the child go to especially the resurrection service. And a few years ago, Nico announced that he wasn't going that he felt that he could get just as much from the whole thing by watching it on TV. So it had to be explained to him very clearly that, no, I don't care what you think, you're coming with me. When he gets there, he thoroughly enjoys it. You know, when you're standing there and all the children and everybody's holding their candles, you've been, you've seen what it's like. It's just amazing on that holy Saturday evening. And just to basically explain, this is, you know, the light of Christ. He's bringing the light of Christ into the world. And, and that beautiful candle, yeah. it, it actually travels and it's lit and it, it yeah. travels from, I understand, symbolically anyways, from the Holy Land the, the, exactly to right, the, the Church Patriarch of the Holy in Athens well, and then right. to the priests and then to all the yeah. people. When I was witnessing the cute little girl running into the arms of her godparents, they gave her the candle That's right. that she would receive the light <laughs> on right. that uh, Easter Saturday yeah. evening. And then they have the kiss of, what is the kiss? Yeah, they, that's very traditional. It's when they say the Christ is risen at exactly 12 o'clock, you turn to the person and you kiss on each cheek. And then it was just, I was in the square, <laughs> Napoli on the square was filled with people giving each other this beautiful <laughs> Easter kiss and then plug your ears. Absolutely. You've got the fireworks, the church bells, the <sighs> ship horns, it's pandemonium, yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, there are battle scars on the sides of churches <laughs> from the firecrackers, firecrackers that are blowing off. off yeah. And I, I would think that's a, a real attraction for the, the teenagers yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then everybody goes home with their candles. The idea is that you bring the light of Christ into your home. And I remember the first time I went to Greece, Yanni's mother, she used to have like a a very, in the corner of the kitchen, a small icon uh, stand with pictures of saints that she was venerating. And in front of them stood the little eternally lit flame set in oil that she had brought from the church every 
Holy Saturday Resurrection service. So as a godmother, you're on duty. Uh, well, you're on duty all the time, but the events that you're on duty yeah. for, Easter, yeah. um, birthdays. Christmas, birthdays, name days. So, Maria, there's the birthday, and then there's the, the name day. It's, in a sense, a second birthday, but it's what is the name day? A name day is the, the feast day of the saint after whom the child is named. On that day, they received gifts, but it's also common that they will also take pastries and sweets into school for their friends it's, and adults as well. It's something to, that to adults celebrate that to day, celebrate to that day, the feast day of the saint after whom they were named. Well, congratulations, Maria, <laughs> for the impact you've had on three, I'm sure, adorable Greek young yeah. people. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Maria Sulis about the role of a Greek godmother. And Maria, in your role as a godmother to three children... What's an example of a moment, just a little intimate moment that made you very happy that that you rose to the call to be a Greek godmother? Well, when I was asked to be on the radio show, I told Nico, I said, come here, I want to ask you something. I said, I'm going to be on a radio show and I'm going to be talking about being your nonna, as I'm called. And I said, what should I say? He said, tell them that you're a really good nonna. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Well, Nona, congratulations and, and best you. wishes. Thank you. Panagia Mwana Pedi, Tamufigito Kafasi, Escalevetadi, Kevetamuto Matiasi. Up next, we get insider recommendations for visiting the Greek capital Athens. We'll hear about the different personalities of the city's neighborhoods that make it worth sticking around the city, even after you've visited the famous sites up on top of the Acropolis. And later in the hour, we get outsider perspectives on Islam and Tibetan Buddhism that show admiration and respect for religions that aren't your own. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Athens has been around so long that you might say it has reincarnated itself over the centuries. As one of the world's oldest cities, its population had declined to just a few thousand by the early 1800s. Now, the Greek capital's metro population is approaching 4 million. While the suburbs sprawl into a congested mess of bad urban planning, the core of the city, where you'll find the breathtaking Acropolis with the floodlit Parthenon, is quite people-friendly. Ancient Athens now comes with a modern infrastructure ever since renovations went in for hosting the 2004 Summer Olympics. To help orient us to the neighborhoods across the city, tour guide Effie Perperi joins us now from Athens. Thanks for being with us, Effie. Thank you so much, Rick. Kalimera. <laughs> it's so good to be able to talk to you. Kalimera, Kalimera. I've been going to Athens ever since I was a teenager. And I'll tell you, I would give it the most improved city award, I think, in Europe over the last couple of decades. How do you feel about the city now and, and how has it changed in your lifetime? Well, I, I'm not an Athenian, to be honest, but I live in Athens since 2000. So it has made a huge improvement. First of all, one of the number one things that changed the life, everyday life uh, of Athenians is the subway system, mm -hmm. which keeps on uh, developing every day. And uh, right now, we don't have the smoke that Athens was famous for back in the 80s and early 90s. Mm. So when you're up at the Acropolis or when you're walking around the city, you can see blue sky everywhere. You know, back in the 80s, I could measure the pollution by how it turned my Kleenex, my, my <laughs> tissue paper black when I blew my nose because of all the pollution. And the buildings were covered in grime and it was noisy and pedestrians were pushed up against the wall with small sidewalks. Now the air is clean. Uh, the, there's pedestrian boulevards. Uh, it's a people-friendly place instead of a car-friendly place. 
and you've invested hugely in public transportation. Wasn't the Olympic Games kind of a turning point? Absolutely, yeah. 2004 was the year where Athens changed its face dramatically, but for good. Um, Ever since then, they removed all the big billboards uh, which were around Sindagma Square and the main avenues. You're not Mm. permitted to do that anymore. Uh, We created big pedestrian areas like the promenade, which is right under the Acropolis, which is quite extended. And most of the neighborhoods right now, they have very good uh, signage so people can walk and they can explore on their own. That's all thanks to the Olympics, of course. Yeah, well, you you must feel very good about your capital city. And I wanted to talk just a bit about neighborhoods. Um, first of all, there's a, a little tiny neighborhood. I think it has like under 100 residents. It's called Anafiotica. Yeah. And uh, it's right on on the slopes, under the, the cliff of the Acropolis. Can you describe this amazing little... little <laughs> it's just the quirkiest place. Uh, well, Anafiotica is a little gem, you know. It used to be like uh, the hidden treasure, but now everybody knows. Always people say, oh my God, I got lost and I went up to this little street and I have the feeling that I'm in Santorini and not in Athens anymore, that I'm on a Greek island. And that happened because like back in the 1800s, people from Anafi Island, which is right next to Santorini, not touristically developed at all, they came to Athens for many reasons, but mostly for financial reasons. And um, while they were looking for jobs and a place to stay, this area was offered to them just as long as they would make it look like their island. Mm. So they got land for free. The only thing they had to do is to create these whitewashed cubic houses with uh, blue shutters and windows to make it look like the island of Hanafi or any Cycladic island. So the government actually gave them the land on the condition that they would create this charming little fake island community in the middle of the 1800s. That's remarkable. The government was even thinking about that. Well, it's said that it was like King Otto that uh, oh, gave them Otto. this opportunity. Yeah, So exactly. he was the German king that they, mm-hmm. when, when, when Greece won its independence from the Ottomans, it needed a king. And you have to shop around Europe for a, a suitable king. <laughs> yes, I guess we adopted had to, one. Not everybody was jumping at the opportunity to be the king of Greece, but Otto, he was looking for a gig. So yeah. he came down from Germany and said, hey, we're going to celebrate our heritage. And he funded the workers you know, it's like immigrant labor. You come in from the islands to the big city, you got a job. And he said, and by the way, recreate your island wonderland right here at the foot of the Acropolis. Huh. And they created a miracle, which is now, it's a little bit of a problem, the fact that this land was given to them for free, because now the descendants of this family, they don't have a title for uh, the property. Oh. So it's becoming a little bit confusing for the future of Anafiotica, for how long they will last, because now it's a monument. It's like a modern history monument, right. and uh, they need to be protected. But on the other hand, there are people living there. This is somebody's home. Yeah. So who's going to pay the bill when uh, hmm. uh, they need to fix something there? Effie Perpery is on the line with us from her home in Athens, Greece, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Effie's a private guide who helps me update my Rick Steves guidebooks on Athens and Greece. We have contact information for her with the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. It's amazing to think about Athens because, as I mentioned earlier, it's a massive city. Four out of every ten Greeks live in Athens, four million people, and most of it is just concrete, modern, suburban sprawl, obviously. But... The old town, and that's just like 150 years old, it was just a little community of five or 10,000 people nestled at the base of the Acropolis. That's the cute area. 
and that's called the placa, and that's where you've got all of the uh, shops and the traditional Zorba the Greek kind of restaurants and uh, hotels, and it's, to be honest, where the tourists like to be. Uh, but let's look at a few other. There is a museum zone behind the palace. Um, Anaktora, is that right? Mm-hmm. Anaktora is, yes, the word for palace, yes. Yeah, it's amazing, this strip of museums. To me, that's a neighborhood. Can you describe what we'd find if we go behind the palace and we go to Anaktora? Well, first of all, we have there a very popular museum, which is a private museum called the Benaki. The Benaki was uh, the private residence of uh, a family that originated from uh, Alexandria of Egypt, and they were collectors of antiquities. And when they returned back to Greece, they decided to build a home for their families, which later on became the home of all these artifacts, uh, from Cycladic figurines to costumes, jewelry, furniture. It's a combination, a museum that has a little bit of everything. And that museum is called, again, the name? The Benaki Museum. Benaki. And then there's... And then there's three or four other museums that are literally mm-hmm. a block away. One of my favorites is the Museum of Cycladic Art. Indeed, yes. It is a unique museum. It belongs to the Gulandris family, uh, which is worldwide known. And mm. uh, they have the biggest collection of uh, Cycladic figurines. And it and it's really beautifully displayed. And Cycladic means the uh, art of the islands from three, 400 years before Christ, I think. Then across the street is the National War Museum, which I find quite boring and old-fashioned, <laughs> and, and it's good because it's air-conditioned. But across the street from that is the Byzantine Christian Museum, which is filled with treasures and, I think, beautifully displayed. Well, both museums. Actually, the War Museum got a lot of uh, publicity because it opened a brand-new cafe restaurant, so they took advantage of uh, an outdoor space they have. And, uh, but it's an indication of what a bad museum is when it advertises its <laughs> exactly. restaurant. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, the Byzantine Museum, it has a collection of multiple icons from different places. It's not very easy for the average visitor to understand Byzantine art in Greece because they believe that uh, after you've seen one painting, you've seen all. However, the ones that are staying longer in Athens, they want to see something off the beaten track. So the Byzantine Museum, it's another place that uh, gives you a lot of inspiration. It's another slice of the amazing many slice story of Athens and Greek history. And for me, this is for the eager beaver extra credit um, tourist that has a, a big appetite for more museums because there's a lot of forgettable, I think pretty mediocre museums in Athens that are in the guidebooks. But This strip of museums here we're talking about is quite good. You can walk there from where they have the changing of the guard on Syntagma Square. And the big news for me is the beautifully remodeled National Gallery. And it's just a couple of blocks further. To me, it's like the the Orsay Museum in Paris, but for Greek art. Well, this uh, museum just opened again. It was closed for over 10 years after Picasso was stolen. So um, thanks to a very big funding... They managed to restore the building and to make it a very modern one, but the, the exhibition remains the mm. same with mm-hmm. multiple uh, temporary exhibitions which are taking place. And if you want modern Greek art, that's, it, it celebrates Greek artists in the modern era. So to me, that's very refreshing after all of the, the ancient stuff and all of the stones. So, Effie, we're going to continue on our little look at different neighborhoods. There are three more that I'd like to talk about. First of all, there's a, a fancy, rich neighborhood that's uh, close to uh, the, the Syntagma Square. Tell us about that neighborhood. Kolonaki. 
Yes. Uh, Kolonaki, it's uh, the area that was developed after the palace was built. So in the early 19th century, all the aristocrats, they built their villas, they built their mansions in proximity to Sindagma Square. Like anywhere in Europe, you want to have your, the rich people, the aristocrats, want to be close to the king, so they build their mansions by the palace. Exactly. So they took advantage of this uh, mountain, which is called Licabetus Hill. So on the slopes of uh, Licabetus Hill is where you can still find some of these old mansions. Uh, well, there is no aristocracy in Greece left anymore, but uh, the buildings exist. So this is a neighborhood that gives you the glory of the past. Mm-hmm. There are multiple restaurants uh, and shops, uh, cafes. It's uh, a meeting point for Athenians. And the name of that that district, the neighborhood? is called Kolonaki. When you have a place like Kolonaki, you have hippies, you've got anarchists, you've got bohemians, you've got people that just want to make a little trouble and stand up against these elites. They must have their own neighborhood. What's that called? Of course. It's on the other side of Licabetus Hill, actually. So they both share the mountain. This is Exarchia. Exarchia. Lately, it's on the news again because they're building a new subway station there. Oh, my goodness. Which will accommodate the needs of the National Archaeological Museum, which is just a block away from the square. Okay. And Exarchia is famous because that's where... When all of the anarchists want to get in the news and if you've got a gripe, they get on their skateboards and their bicycles and they go downhill to Syntagma Square and they'll burn a couple of cars and they'll break some windows and they'll march in front of the palace and they'll make their case and then they go back to their bohemian quarter and they fill up their music clubs at night. It's an amazing place to visit. Do you find it's, um, is it safe and comfortable for a tourist to go there? Not only for tourists, but even for the locals. And uh, personally, I, I'm hanging out a lot in uh, Exarchia, although I'm not an anarchist. And I'm taking my daughter along, like a nine-year-old. Nice. Because it's a place where you can still get the feeling of a neighborhood. Oh, for and sure. uh, do you know, have you ever heard of this uh, farmer's market, which is taking place every Saturday? No, in Exarchia? Yes, it's the talk of the town. It's a farmer's market that has uh, a little bit of everything. Fruits, huh. vegetables, meat, but you can find shoes and you can find clothes. And uh, it's the ambience of this farmer's market that attracts a lot of people from other parts of uh, Athens. So they take it like a trip. Is it like a food fight? Do the anarchists throw tomatoes at each other? <laughs> not yet. They're not interested in food. They only <laughs> want to play with, you know, the policemen, which are uh, uh, stationed right. <laughs> uh, in every corner. So, no, they're not really interested in the market. And Exarchia is like a Jackson Pollock crazy painting of graffiti. Everywhere Mm -hmm. you look, there's graffiti. It's just, there's not a plain wall anywhere. And the parks are where the community gathers. It's like an extended living room. It's really a great place to check out, and certainly a free-spirited place. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we've been joined from Greece by our friend Effie Pepperi. She's an Athens tour guide. And we've been sorting out the highlights in the neighborhoods of this wonderful Greek capital. The last neighborhood I'd like to talk about is the one that's up and coming for tourists. And it used to be undiscovered. Now it's quite discovered, and there's lots of nice little activities for tourists there. Still very characteristic. It's called Siri, right? Yes. Uh, Siri is just across the street from Monastiraki Square, a very famous place. Uh, Everybody knows when they look at the maps, they have it as a meeting point. So Monastiraki is pretty obvious and wide and open. And uh, it's the beginning of the pedestrian area. So right across mm-hmm. the street, 
uh, a lot of people were not comfortable walking on the little alleys in the beginning because they were kind of dark and uh, they didn't know where they were going to end up. But now Psyri is thriving. Mm. On weekends, you can barely walk, even in the wintertime. So they have many uh, restaurants where they play Greek music, live music. And even more, they're offering cooking classes. So that's something new. And there are many pastry stores. I went there as a kid because there were um, theaters. And of course, it's so warm in Greece, they're open-air theaters. So it's just like a little parking lot that has a big screen. And they'd set up chairs and everybody would go see the movie. Well, unfortunately, our favorite open-air theater in uh, Psyri now has become a restaurant. But there is still one in Thysion, which is not far, far away. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, this one has closed, but the theaters still remain. You know, a lot of people like to see um, murals, um, street art. And there's graffiti and there's actually street art. And I was told in Greece, if you don't want your building tagged by a bunch of ugly graffiti, let a street artist do your building. And there's an unwritten law among people who run around in the wee hours of the morning with a can of spray paint. They don't mess up a building that has a piece of street art. Uh, And you find beautiful, beautiful murals that are artistic in themselves. Uh, And it's sort of a new kind of art all over Europe that gives voice to people who are otherwise voiceless. Uh, What's your take on the street art in Athens? Well, I prefer it than the tagging. I really love graffiti as an art. They make murals, but you can find some smaller ones all over Athens. It's not anymore in this uh, touristy area. They Mm -hmm. are everywhere. So Inno... It's, uh, I think, a number one uh, graffiti artist in Greece. And he is the one that has performed miracles. So Mm. he has completely transformed neighborhoods and made them a little bit more attractive and interesting. And now most of these murals um, followed with a QR code where you can um, use your phone and it's like a map and it can take you to the next one, which is the closest uh, work of art. Oh, that is great. Mm -hmm. I love that. And also, if you're um, a little bit curious about the street art in a a broader context, I'm sure there's tour guides like you that that Mm -hmm. do tours of the street art and it's changing all the time. So you have to be up to date and that is something to be mindful of. Effie, it's been so great talking with you and we've talked about kind of the predictable neighborhoods here. Um, What would your one more favorite neighborhood that we should know about be? Maybe the the new Siri or something like that. Um, Now everybody's focused in this area, which is actually near where I live, right by the water, where is Stavros Nyarchos Cultural uh, Center. Hmm. There is the home of the new national opera, the new national library, surrounded by a big park connected to a marina that was built for the Olympics of 2004. And what is the name of that neighborhood? Uh, it's called Calithea, actually. Is that, how would you spell that? It's K-A-L-L-I-T-H-E-A. Calithea. And can you get there by the subway that goes from downtown Athens out to Pyrenees? Not yet. There is one subway which is going to be built for this specific building, but there are mm-hmm. multiple public buses plus the hop-on, hop-off buses that uh, people can Ah. take uh, to wander around the city, plus a free shuttle bus from Sindagma Square, Mm. I think every half hour. And uh, it's daily from morning till dawn, and people can get there. Even by taxi, it's such a short distance, like 10 minutes from Sindagma Square. Effie Peppery, such a delight to talk with you. Next time I'm in Greece, will you show me around that neighborhood? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, F. Edistol. Bye.
Παρακαλώ. Thank you. Up next, we get two perspectives on how traveling to another culture can change how you see others and learn to appreciate other religions on their own terms. A Christian Arab American shares what he's come to admire about Islam, and an Episcopal deacon provides insight into a Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Thanks for coming with us today. It's Travel with Rick Steves. When John F. Kennedy was campaigning to be president, he spoke to the ideals of young Americans. He proposed a new type of service where Americans, with all their advantages, could volunteer to help out in developing countries around the world. Growing up in New Jersey, George Goryab was intrigued by this new Peace Corps that was emerging. He volunteered to teach English in Morocco right out of college. As the son of Christian Arab immigrants from the Middle East, George had an advantage in being fluent in Arabic. His years in Morocco and Yemen showed George how misguided American presumptions about life in an Arabic country can be, both about the culture and about its main religion. In fact, this former altar boy developed an appreciation for the Muslim faith that he saw practiced by his students and friends. Since then, George Goryab has served as the chairman of the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee and co-founded the Middle East Peace Project in New York. George joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves during this Ramadan season in Islam to explain what he admires about the religion of his Muslim neighbors. Thank you so much, Rick. I'm delighted to be with you. Now, George, you were born and raised in New Jersey, but your parents immigrated from the Middle East, from, yes. uh, from Lebanon and Syria, right? That's correct. Christian on both sides. Christians on both sides. And I've always enjoyed talking to you about the complexities of the Middle East, and it's always been frustrating to me how hard it is for Americans to understand the different religions and how they relate to each other. Um, some people might wonder, well, how can a Christian Arab help Americans, whether they're Christians or not, understand Islam. How, how do you defend that idea? I would defend it this way. I grew up in New Jersey with many of the same myths and fallacies about Muslims that I believed in myself. I didn't know any Muslims as a teenager. In high school, I went to a Catholic high school. I had intended to become a Catholic priest, and I went to a Catholic college. But when I graduated college and I joined the Peace Corps and they sent me to North Africa, that was my first exposure to living and working and being with Muslims all day, every day. And that opened my eyes to what the truth is. And now that I'm back in America for literally the last 40 years, I've tried to share my life experiences with living and working and being with Muslims so that they could find out some truths about them and, and debunk so many myths. And, you know, religion's all about just getting close to God and... When you do get to know Islam, God is everywhere, inshallah. Yes. Give a couple of examples of how God is, permeates their society. There were many things I loved about living in a Muslim society, but one of them was, it was obvious to me after a couple of months that God was really a part of their lives in a way that I had never experienced in Christianity. They mentioned God's name all day, every day. Nothing happens in life without the expression Alhamdulillah, which means praise be to God. If somebody asks you, how are you? Your answer is not, oh, I'm feeling pretty good. Things are great. You give praise to God. If you talk about something in the future in the Arabic language, you end that sentence or begin that sentence with the phrase inshallah, which means God willing. 
You're constantly reminding yourself that God is a part of your life, and you live that way. That's why I was so impressed with Islam is more than religion. It's a way of life. It's a way of living. George, we both understand the importance of the two massive societies, Christendom and Islam, making bridges instead of walls, and we do that through travel. How can you illustrate the sadness of how little American Christians would know about Islamic communities on the other side of the world? Try to imagine a young boy who grows up somewhere in an African or Asian country in a Muslim nation who's never had the opportunity to learn anything about Christianity. And let's imagine that he's never read anything about Jesus. He's never met a Christian. He's never read anything about what the faith involves. However, when he listens to the radio or watches TV, he sees examples of Christian extremist right groups like the KKK beating and killing innocent people. And that's the only thing he knows. So what would you expect that little boy to think about what Christians were like if that's the only information he was exposed to? You couldn't fault him for thinking, for him thinking, that all Christians are terrorists, because that's the only thing he sees on TV. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with George Goreyeb. He's co-founder of the Mideast Peace Project in New York City, designed to better understand Islam and the Muslim faith in our society. George shares a powerful hour-long lecture on what is Islam in the lectures page at ricksteves.com. You know, George, we've got a few minutes left, and if you don't mind, I'd like to just go really quickly, just so we can understand some of the basic tenets of uh, Islam, or just kind of for the typical American traveler, as you were when you started this decades-long study and as I've always been. I'll just quickly review the, the five pillars or requirements of Islam. You have to profess faith in one God. Uh, You've got to give to charity. You've got to fast during the month of Ramadan. And you need to make a pilgrimage to Mecca if you can. And you're supposed to pray five times a day. The religion itself is based on a holy book, just like Christians have the Bible. Muslims have the Quran. Tell us what the Quran is. Well, what you need to know when when you want to understand what the, the holy book, the Quran, is, is that it was communicated to an illiterate, uneducated man named Muhammad, who lived approximately 600 years after Jesus was crucified. He was born and raised in Saudi Arabia. At the age of 40, he was meditating in the desert at night. And Muslims believe that he was approached by the archangel Gabriel, who commanded him to recite. And he protested because he said, I don't know how to read. I can't read and write. I can't recite. And the angel persisted three times, commanding him to recite. And finally he did. And he, he repeated what the angel was, was conveying to him. And Muslims believe that this was divine inspirational revelation directly from God. Now, Muhammad would return to the city in the daytime, and he would repeat what he was instructed at night. And scribes would write down exactly word for word what he was told by the angel Gabriel. And this series of revelations continued for the rest of Muhammad's life for 22 years resulting in a book called the Qur'an, which in Arabic means the recitation or the reading. And for Muslims, it is a perfect book. And by the way, for the last 14 centuries, since it was first written down, it has remained 100% consistent. Every word, every line is exactly what every Qur'an that's over a thousand years old has inside. 
which is so different from Christianity because now every decade you get a new version of the Bible in today's yes. language and, and so on. So I understand this is a 77,000-word poem, and it is very, very beautiful to hear. It's like a, a Shakespeare sonnet or something like that. Yes. And there's something about the hypnotic beauty of the words in there that are just, they're inspiring beyond what what I could imagine. I mean, you have to you have to understand the Arabic, and it's a powerful book that way. Another thing that's interesting is we have a tough time with these three great monotheistic religions, and in our country we call a lot of things Judeo-Christian, yes. uh, kind of thinking that the Jewish faith and the Christian faith have a lot in common, implying more than the Muslim faith. Uh, what is your take on who has more in common and how these three great religions relate to each other? I, I like to quote a very dear Israeli friend of mine who's a professor of conflict resolution at a university in Washington, D.C. She's Jewish, and she married a, a Moroccan who's Muslim. And she told me once that she felt like Muslims and Jews have far more in common than Jews and Christians because there's so many things, so many uh, rituals and, and dietary restrictions and beliefs that are very, very consistent between Muslims and Jews. And I find it ironic that we always refer to the Judeo-Christian ethic when we really should be referring to the Judeo-Christian Islamic ethic because Islam incorporates the teachings of the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible together with the Quran. Muslims have to read all of those. And the Christian Bible is centuries older than the Muslim Quran. That's right. You know, this few minutes that we've had a chance to talk just reminds me of how much we can benefit just by having an interest in Islam. The, Absolutely. It, it's certainly not going to go away. It's going to be filling the headlines for the rest of our lives, and we can't learn about it by looking at the evening news. We've got to make some Muslim friends. We've got to travel, get out of our comfort zone, break bread with people, and any chance I get to see something positive in another religion, I like to try to do that. Uh, the call to prayer, five times a day, for me, it's this global cosmic wave of praise spinning around the planet as fast as the world spins from Malaysia all the way to Morocco and beyond. Do you know what I mean, how that can be a beautiful thing? Yes, I always found that the fact that Muslims will take a 10-minute break in the middle of their day to communicate with God is just a reminder of how important God is in their life every day. They never feel separated from God. And I, I've had experiences in my life where I, I cite an example where I was buying some jewelry one time in a jewelry store in Saudi Arabia. It was my first time there. I'd already lived in a Muslim country, several Muslim countries. But in Saudi Arabia, which is probably the most strict out of the 55 predominantly Muslim countries on earth, they shut everything down for 10 minutes. Whenever it's prayer time, everything stops. I was in the middle of buying jewelry and the guy kicked me out of the store and I had to wait on the sidewalk until 10 minutes was up and I came back in. And when you're traveling in Islam, there's this, for me, wonderful cacophony of sounds as all of the minarets have their tinny speakers and everybody is hollering the, what are they saying at the call to prayer? Allahu Akbar. They're chanting, Allahu Akbar. God is great, God is great. There's only one God and Muhammad is his prophet. That is the profession of faith. That is the central tenet of the Islamic faith. We hear that five times a day from all the minarets. It's, a, again, a reminder it of how... Beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to me. And yes. uh, it's a good reminder of how religion permeates uh, people's lives in Islam. 
George, thank you so much. And um, thanks for all you do to help us better understand each other. Thank you very much, Rick. I appreciate it. This has been a very good conversation, and I'm grateful. You can view George Goryeb's lecture on Appreciating Islam from a link on our website. Look for it with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Lori Erickson is an Episcopal deacon, and she's developed a following for writing about spiritual discoveries in her travels. She investigated the types of rituals and traditions people employ to deal with the realities of death in her book, Near the Exit. And she shares discoveries about her Viking ancestors in The Soul of the Family Tree. She joins us now from our affiliate, Iowa Public Radio, to look at the meaning behind those colorful prayer flags you see flying from monasteries in Tibet, and quite possibly in an office cubicle or backyard patio near you. Tibetan prayer flags, they flap colorfully in the wind. You see them climbing in the Himalayas, or you see them in your neighbor's backyard. What do they mean? Writer Lori Erickson is our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves, and Lori writes about the intersection of travel and spirituality. Her latest book is The Soul of the Family Tree. She's written about these prayer flags and joins us now for a little insight. Lori, tell us about, I mean, these prayer flags, first of all, you see them on dramatic spots in the Himalayas, but now you see them more than ever right here at home in the United States. What do they mean? I think they mean a variety of, of things to people. I think to some people, they're decorations. And I think it's unfortunate that they don't realize the deeper meanings behind Tibetan prayer flags. And I should say, first of all, I'm I'm not a practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism, but I, I actually have studied it a fair amount and mm-hmm. have been to a lot of temples and have gotten a deeper understanding of these flags. And I I think it's a beautiful tradition, but I think people should know more about it maybe before they start putting up those flags. So the idea is that there are sacred images that are printed on these flags, and they're in uh, sacred colors, blue, white, red, green, and yellow, always in the same order. Each of those colors have symbolic meaning. So you and you you wrote in your article you wrote blue is for heaven white is for air mm-hmm. red is for fire mm-hmm. green for water and yellow for earth so it, it covers the whole gamut there right and a, a very common image that's on these flags is the wind horse uh, which is a a mythical animal that actually dates back to pre Buddhist Tibet. Hmm. And the idea is that the wind horse carries prayers uh, from earth to heaven. And it's also believed that when the prayer flags flutter in the wind, that the wind carries the prayers as well, and it spreads them far and wide, spreading Buddhist teachings on love and compassion. And I think, too, another part of the meaning of these flags is they're not meant to be put up for personal, for selfish reasons, uh, that Mm -hmm. they're very much meant to be a blessing for the larger world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I mean, that's such a wonderful lesson right there, that they're beautiful in and of themselves, but they are really meant to bless the world and that the wind does that. I love that. Your your phrase was, uh, blessings spoken on the breath of nature. Like a drop uh-huh. of water impacts the sea. When the wind hits those flags, it's, it broadcasts. It's, it's essentially a spiritual broadcast, that little wind power. Right, right. It's a beautiful thing. And also, it's, it's interesting to me, there's so much um, heritage and history in there. I mean, a lot of those, uh, the, the images on the prayer flag, they go back five centuries to Chinese woodblock mm-hmm. paintings. And some Buddhist master would cr- actually create an original design centuries ago, and that design would still be used. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a lot of the this tradition, too, actually has its roots in the pre-Buddhist 
uh, traditions of Tibet as well. So mm-hmm. it, it goes much farther back, even than five, six hundred years. So, you know, when you look at those flags, you really are seeing an ancient tradition that lives in the modern world. And it, to some extent, is being reinterpreted. But I think that once people learn even a little bit about Tibetan flags, I think they immediately see the the beauty of the larger symbols involved. You know, I think that's really important because I've got some neighbors that fly their Buddhist prayer flags, and I don't think they're necessarily Buddhist, but they embrace that mm-hmm. sort of idea of peace and compassion and, mm-hmm. and, and so on. I guess uh, if you're going to fly uh, the prayer flags of another religion, you should understand the importance of them from that uh, religion's point of view. For instance, the uh, prayer flags are supposed to be treated with the same respect that we would treat our stars and stripes. I mean, when it's old and worn, Mm -hmm. uh, you don't just throw Mm -hmm. it away. It should be uh, apparently burned to release those blessings. Mm -hmm. That's right. And uh, the the flags are not to touch the floor or the ground for Mm -hmm. a similar reason. You want to treat them with respect. And yeah, I think it's people, I think it's important that people honor those traditions if they're going to use Tibetan prayer flags. Well, Laura, you you have a fascinating uh, passion, I think, for um, taking your interest in spirituality as an Episcopalian deacon and as an avid traveler, and then uh, weaving it together in what you learn through your travels. Your latest book, The Soul of the Family Tree, talks about mixing genealogy and exploring your ancestors with travel. And just a a little bit of thought about um, the importance of of, uh, Tibetan prayer flags. Uh, now, as a Christian minister or deacon, when you look at these prayer flags, I, I like the the positive spin you put on it. You don't need to actually be a practitioner of this religion or that religion, but I like it when you find no contradiction in embracing something that is universal between cultures. I think so often religion becomes a point of conflict between people and a point of division. But I think if you go to a deeper level, the points of connection, the threads of connection are so much more powerful. You know, the power of prayer, the power of of forgiveness, you know, the appreciation for the, the power of nature, the beauty mm. of nature. Those are found in virtually all religions that I know of, at least. And we can stand side by side with people and be in solidarity and not say the same prayers, but, mm-hmm. you know, breathe the same sacred air. And I think that that's all to the good. And it's one of the reasons why I love traveling to sacred sites around the oh, world. I love because, that. Yes. Blessings yeah. spoken on the breath of nature. When we look at those prayer flags, regardless of uh, whatever religion we, we embrace or no religion at all, we can be mindful of the fact that it's just important to be tuned in to the welfare of all beings and mindful of the need to be compassionate and kind and joyful. I'll look at these Tibetan prayer flags a little differently next time. Thanks so much, Lori. <laughs> Thank you, Rick, for having me. Lori Erickson is working on a new book that she calls a Spiritual Geography of America from Appalachia to Alaska. It's set to be released in September. There's more on her website, laurierickson.net. And Lori is spelled L-O-R-I. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm the executive producer, Tim Tatton. Our associate producers are Kazmara Hall and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate promotions from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. When you're on a road trip, you can listen to Travel with Rick Steves on one of more than 500 other radio stations. You'll find a list of when and where we're broadcast at ricksteves.com radio. The Rick Steves Guidebooks are consistently the best-selling series of guides to Europe. 
that's because we lovingly update them in person and cut through all the superlatives to give you hard and smart opinions based on decades of experience. Find them at your favorite bookseller and at ricksteves.com.